Uh, well, today we're going to be in, in our studies in the, in the gospel according to Matthew. Um, and so turn to page, well, not page, sorry, uh, chapter 22 of Matthew's gospel, if you have your Bible with you. Um, and we've been in the context of, this is the last week of Jesus' life on uh, earth in his earthly ministry before his death and resurrection. And so the water is beginning to boil. Um, things are heating up. And from this point on, it only gets more and more intensified. Uh, but the context of our, our uh, message today and our study is that of challenging Jesus' authority. Uh, he's responding to their question uh, back in chapter 21. I, um, he said, you know, they, they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, Jesus asked a question back to them, and they refused to answer. And we talked about that in, in summary last week, but Jesus gave three parables. And in these parables, uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, uh, the chief priests, they're in the temple. And uh, in the temple, in, the, in this context, they're, they're asking questions, they're, they're, they're engaging in his parables even. So today, uh, we're going to look at questioning Christ or questioning the king. And we'll see four questions that are asked. Three by the enemies um, that are highly antagonistic against Christ and one of Jesus himself. He will uh, end with a, a question. And so uh, we look at Matthew 22, verses 15 to 46. That's the, rend the, the rest of the chapter, uh, questioning the king. Uh, but before I read this passage, I want to start with an illustration that came from uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a book at some point in the 20th century. I think it came out in the 70s. It was a collection of essays called God in the Dock. And I grew up in America. I, I didn't know that expression, God in the Dock. Um, I read part of the book, uh, but Lewis explains what that, that phrase means. Uh, God, God in the Dock essentially means God on trial. And he says this, Modern human beings, rather than seeing themselves as standing before God in judgment, prefer to place God on trial while acting as judge. And so it's the, the scene, the image of a courtroom, and God is sitting on trial, and he's on defense, defending himself. That's kind of the position that these religious leaders take, um, or these leaders take. They are questioning Christ, um, and so we'll see that today. So let's look at verse 15 of Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about man anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. 
And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and, the, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. So the first group that approaches Jesus, the Pharisees, they would not show up on their own. Uh, notice it says in verse 16, they sent their disciples. So I don't know if they were just trying to put some distance. Uh, there had been hostility between the Pharisees and Jesus directly, namely chapter 12 um, and other occasions. But they sent their disciples to do their dirty work. They sent them with this loaded question. And uh, when, they, when they approach Jesus, um, something that's really interesting about this is that the Pharisees partnered with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were religious conservatives. The Herodians were religious sellouts. So they actually hated each other. The Herodians supported the Roman occupation of um, Jerusalem and, and, and the land. And so the Pharisees and Herodians find an alliance, common ground, based on a common enemy, and that is Jesus. So at this point in the Gospels, Jesus is an enemy to the Pharisees. He's an enemy to the Herodians, enough to unite enemies in an evil plot. And so they become allies. They're working together to trap Jesus. I love uh, their statement of verse 16. It is... Uh, I mean, it's just one of my favorites. Um, it is a message of flattery. You, you have to understand that. They don't truly believe what they're saying. Um, they're trying to butter Jesus up, uh, which reminds me of uh, Psalm 55 we read a few weeks ago. Uh, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. So with buttery speech, they say this to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, or you don't look at men's faces. And so they say this, uh, and it's an actual act of flattery, and if they really believe this, then they, weren't, they wouldn't try to butter Jesus up. But nevertheless, the butter comes out. And Jesus knows it's a trap, Jesus knows um, they're trying to put him in two different categories. They're saying, Jesus, are you a revolutionary? Um, are you going for revolution uh, against the Roman authorities? Or are you in collaboration with them? So are you working against Rome or are you working with Rome? And whichever, whichever uh, way he goes, he'll either be nicked, cut, or killed. Uh, certainly, if he's a, if he's a rebel, the insurrectionists, those who oppose Caesar, oppose Rome, uh, they were crucified. There were people who tried to re uh, lead revolts. Um, but Jesus uh, is brilliant. And um, this, this uh, first question centers around a coin. And so we have the paying tax, taxes question. So they said, tell us then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now this tax was a Roman poll tax um, and it wasn't much. It was a denarius, which is a day's wage. So I don't know how much you make in a day, 
but whatever uh, you earn in one day, that would be the tax to pay. Uh, that's certainly more than we pay probably in our home countries. Um, I know that's true. I mean, coming to the United States, every time I buy a sandwich, I have to pay taxes. So, uh, uh, but nevertheless, uh, they ask a tax question to Jesus. This is one to trap him. And he destroys their categories. He does not take the safe middle road. He knows if he answers this way, uh, this will happen. He'll be considered a revolutionary. If he answers the other way um, and says, yes, pay the tax without any qualifications, he might be seen as collaborating with Rome and uh, siding with you know, Caesar or making the religious authorities even further upset. So instead, he destroys their categories because he's the Lord and he lives out his life as the Lord. And he says this, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. So they bring out this coin and in the coin, many, many commentators think on one side it had uh, the inscription Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And remember, they're in the temple. And on the back of the coin, it may have said Pontifex Maximus, which means the great high priest. So basically this coin on one side ascribes divinity to Augustus as, uh, and uh, um, great high priest. And so Jesus doesn't have a coin on him, but he asks for one. They say, sure, you want money? We've got money. We love money. And they pull out a coin. And the irony is they're in the temple, uh, the first and second commandments say have no other gods before me besides me don't make anything engraven image and here they are they pull out a coin and it's um, just a smack right in the face because they're holding something that they don't believe in at all it's deeply offensive to the pharisees in particular so the buttery speech um, jesus doesn't end there he tells them uh, whose likeness is on it they, he said, they say Caesar's, and he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and the, give to God the things that are God. The result of this memorable statement is um, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. So a few um, takeaways we see here is that Jesus has respect for government. Um, he sees that respecting government is an important form of respect for God. And so the New Testament as a whole uh, does not speak about revolt and rebellion against governing authorities. In fact, the church has always historically, uh, when it's been its best, <laughs> at its best and true, um, has been prayerful in its subjection and respect for, this, for, the, for the governing authorities. So that's the prevailing attitude and commands of Scripture, um, namely 1 Peter chapter 2. Fear God, honor the king. Um, and this has resulted in persecution for the church, uh, especially in the early church. But they didn't get their swords. They didn't uh, foster a rebellion. So there's no talk of revolution in Jesus' uh, kingdom in that sense. And later on, he'll talk about that. My kingdom is not of this world. 
And so God has a purpose in our lives, in our governing authorities. He has a purpose even in the evil rulers that seat, are seated in power. Um, that's hard for us to swallow. When, we, when, I, when I'm walking through my country, I haven't been here for two years or so, and I walk through and I just see the idols that are uh, prevalent. Um, I'm seeing mess overt messages, I mean clear messages, that are anti-against God and His Word, um, deeply offensive to Him. Um, I have to realize that God has a purpose and a plan, and He is working it out even through evil rulers. And I think as we spend time in the Psalms, that's why the psalmists so much cry out to God. They're not crying out to their fellow humans, compatriots or whatever, and saying, hey, we need to overthrow the powers that be. Anyways, I'm not going to, I'm not going to indirectly talk about politics too much. So um, that's all for now. Uh, But we continue here with another question. Uh, Now this one is quite ironic as well. Um, The Sadducees come up to Jesus and they ask a resurrection question. So verses 23 to 33 the same day the Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection and they ask him a question saying teacher Moses said if man dies having no children his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother now there were seven brothers among us the first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother so too the second and third down to the seventh after them all the woman the woman died in the resurrection therefore of the seven whose wife will she be for they all had her but jesus answered them you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven and As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So we have a resurrection question. Uh, Well, it it ends, you know, yeah, (laughs) a resurrection question that's around the topic of marriage. Um, and so the Sadducees kind of pick up on the style of Jesus and they use a parable or a hypothetical situation and this is their best shot at him and they're referring to Deuteronomy 25 which God gave uh, to uh, Moses through Moses to the to Israel that um, if the older brother died, the younger brother was to uh, obligated to marry, or to um, con- to uh, produce children for the family, so that the the woman was taken care of, and um, that the family name could go on. So they they put him in this uh, this question, and essentially, you know. Uh, Timmy was married to Sally and Timmy dies. Well, Timmy had a brother named Jimmy and Jimmy marries Sally and they didn't have children. So Timmy and, and Jimmy died. And then Tommy and Bobby and Sue, uh, I don't know, all the names, all the way down. Um, and then 
ask whose whose wife will she be? Well, they don't even believe in the resurrection. And so something that's so interesting about this is Jesus says something that's actually, I think, very shocking. Um, And he talks about the temporary nature of marriage in this world or the unique uh, relationship that we as human beings have to marriage in this world. Um, He says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So uh, I remember as a single, when I, single person, when I read this, I was pretty discouraged. I was like, wow, if I never get married, it's never going to happen for eternity. Um, verse 30, pretty much Jesus says that. There's no marriage, marriage in the new heaven, the new earth. That's not exactly what he's saying. Um, and the real emphasis, what Jesus is actually doing here, is he's saying, um, the real emphasis is being like the angels. And so um, he's going to talk about and defend the resurrection of the body, physically, literally, but uh, the real emphasis is being like the angels. So we'll talk about that in a, ma- a minute. Uh, but a couple things to think about for marriage. I've, I've really never thought about it this deeply before, though I've heard uh, sermons. Um, I remember as a young man, uh, a, a preacher saying, I've been married to this woman for 50 years, and you're going to say in heaven, I'm not going to have this intimate relationship with her anymore? And he says, no way, that's not how heaven's going to be. And I was trying to think, well, what's the scriptural basis for that? Well, uh, Mike Mason, um, this is a quote I wrote out. So uh, he says this in his book, Mystery of Marriage. Uh, There's such rich imagery And it's more probable that what Jesus means here, rather than no marriage in heaven, that heaven will be all marriage. So indeed, in earthly marriage, we may detect a sign and a promise that in eternity, everyone is married to everyone else in some transcendent and unimaginable union, and everyone will love everyone else with an intensity akin to that which now is called being in love and which impels individuals, couples, to spend their whole lives together. In this way, Christian marital love is or should be as close as we are to experience to being a piece of heaven on earth. And Jonathan Edwards, when he was dying, he talked to his daughter and said, relay this this message to my wife. Uh, He was an American theologian, and he said this, Give my kindest love to my dear wife, and tell her that the uncommon union, which has so long subsided between us, has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual, and therefore will continue forever. So both of these people, one modern, one older uh, uh, from before, Edwards and Mason, are basically saying that marriage is a sim, um, has a token sign, um, but it's, there's an intensification in, in, in heaven uh, with all purity, and it's not, there's going to be no lack in the new heaven, new earth. Uh, but I, I really like what he says here, all marriage. And uh, I remember talking to this with Dalal about this before, this passage, and just really thinking, well, I'm not going to be married to you? in heaven, um, but there's going to be such a dynamic of relationships that Jesus says will be like the angels. 
So are you jealous of the angels in a healthy jealousy way? Um, what do the angels have in relationship to God and to other creatures? They have unbridled, unbroken, ceaseless communion with God. Um, they serve him absolutely perfectly 100% of the time and without hesitation, without weariness or sin. And so Jesus says you'll be like the angels. And so I think really what Jesus is getting at here is there's going to be an intensification of our relationships to other created beings. And it's not just limited to the best that, you know, the best marriage on earth is still uh, a fallen marriage. But there are pictures and it points us to um, there is one marriage that does endure, and that is between Christ and his church uh, in heaven. And so that's in Revelation chapter 19. And so a question about taxes, and Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's, Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's. We are to give our whole lives to him. And then he defends the resurrection. Uh, he says here, this is based on Exodus 3, 6, uh, a verse that the Sadducees would have respected. Um, a little bit more background about them. They basically only believed in Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so Jesus uh, looks to them and he says, uh, I want to tell you about a, a verse from Exodus. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so when God says these words, he doesn't speak in the past, he speaks in the present, because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive. And so Jesus is hitting them on something they don't believe. They really don't believe in the resurrection. Jesus says the, real, re, the, re, the resurrection is a reality. And the crowd heard it. They were astonished. So question number one, marveled. Question number two, astonished. Now question number three, we have one about the law. Um, a lawyer comes up. So verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in that day, uh, a few people had uh, rabbis attempted to answer this question. Can you sum up the Old Testament or what's it all about? And one Rabbi Hillel, I think his name was, uh, he summed it up as the golden rule, uh, but it, it, in a negative sense. If, if you don't like something, don't do it to your neighbor. And then he said, the rest is commentary, go and learn. Uh, another person said, um, Proverbs 3, 6, in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your path another rabbi said the just live by faith but Jesus says all of scripture the Olden Testament and the new uh, it can be summed up in one command love love for God love for neighbor but no one 
and, and, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, knew these commands. They knew Leviticus. Jesus comment, comments from Leviticus a lot. Leviticus, Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. Uh, and then love God came from the Shema. They would say it in the morning. They would say it in the evening. They'd say it whenever they gathered that God is one. But Jesus was the first person um, to unite these two commands. And he says, basically, it is impossible to love God if you do not love your neighbor. And so the way we love God is by loving our neighbor. And the way we love our neighbor can only happen because we love God. And the Apostle John picks up on this in 1 John 4. Uh, 1 John 4 19 and 20 he says we love because he first loved us if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love god whom he has not seen and so uh these are two distinct commands that he uh, that the lawyer asked for one command but jesus reduced it to two distinct commands but they're indivisible so the way we love God is by loving our neighbor, um, and God cannot be loved apart from neighbor, and neighbor cannot be loved apart from God. So now that we've had three questions, a Q&A session with Jesus, um, the water is boiling. Uh, now Jesus is going to ask a question of his own, and we'll end with this. Verse 41. Now, while the, Pharise while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They say to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So the first question was a kind of about politics, uh, a coin uh, Jesus asked for. The second one uh, ended up being an, a resurrection question, a theology question. Uh, the next one, a question about the law. But Jesus has a question about himself. He has a question about Christology. He says, who is the Messiah? Let's, like, let's cut through all the questions and let's get to the most important question. Who is the Messiah? And they think this is an easy one. Oh, well, yeah, he's David's son. But Jesus wants to point out to them from Scripture that the Messiah is more than just a son. He is more than human. He is more than David's son. He is David's Lord. And so this is a brand new category for them. They've been trying to trap Jesus in their categories. And Jesus, uh, time after time, has destroyed their boxes and showed that he's bigger. Um, this reminds me of a story I just read. Uh, for our British folks here, you may know this very well. Um, so if I totally mess up this story, you can rebuke me after the call. Um, so in England... In the, like 1200s, there was a chair, and it was called King Edward's Chair. And uh, this chair is huge, and it's, it's really big, and it's uh, wooden. It's all wooden. 
Um, and when Queen Elizabeth, I think it was 1930, oh, I'm going to mess up everything. In the 50s, maybe. I'm so sorry I'm butchering your history, my British friends, brothers and sisters. Uh, when she sat down on the throne, um, she had the, the royal robes and the, and the, the, the crown, um, looked beautiful and glorious. But this chair is big. I mean, it's really big. Like, who can fill the chair? And so um, even with all of the garb on, she, there was still room on this throne. But uh, I think the throne is a bit symbolic. It's this kingdom, the kingdom of, of the United Kingdom, it is, 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 it's really big, and uh, the chair is symbolic of that. And so Jesus, though... When he sits on the throne, he fills it up uh, completely. And the scriptures, like, the thing about Jesus is the religious leaders, the, all these people that are confronting him, think they understand the Bible really well. They think they have, like, they are the, the chief authority. And that's what we've been talking about. And Jesus shows them, you don't even know all the categories. And you don't know, like you told the Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures nor the power of God. And so um, it's kind of a scary thing that we can be so deceived and, and think we understand and know and everything's right in our lives. But until we come face to face with the truth and are conf confronted with it, um, we might not realize that we really don't know what, what we're talking about at all. And so... Uh, the Bible continually calls us to humility and to a place of learning and hearing. Um, and really, Jesus is Lord. And that's the thrust of the New Testament. It's the emphasis of it, but it's not new. Um, this is hidden in the Old Testament. And Jesus refers, you know, we could do a, a study on this at uh, Psalm 2. It talks about how he will be king over the whole earth. Um, and his enemies will be his footstool. And so Jesus is big enough to fill the chair. Um, Queen Elizabeth, wow, she looked amazing. I, I looked, Googled some pictures um, sitting on that chair. Uh, but Jesus fills up the chair. And, you know, Jesus is teaching this, the nature of who he is. He is 100% man, but he's more than man. He's also the son of God. And uh, the Father in Matthew 3 and in Matthew 17 said this from the cloud, uh, from the heavens. He said, this is my son whom I love, um, my beloved son. And then in chapter 17, listen to him. And so here Jesus demands us to see that scripture teaches us that the Messiah is more than just a son. He is Lord. And he's referring to Psalm 110. It's quoted 37 times in the New Testament, the most quoted verse of the New Testament. So uh, who is Jesus? That's the real question. Uh, so let's pray. Uh, Father, we come to you. We thank you for these encounters that have been recorded us for us in your Holy Scripture. Um, religious leaders try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, and the crowd is amazed, and they're questioning his authority, and he speaks with authority, and they're left silenced. Um, but we know that a day is coming when you're going to do more, Jesus, than silence your enemies. You're, in fact, you're going to 
bend the knee of your enemies, and you're going to use their tongues to confess that you are Lord. And so um, what's our response? Our response is, Jesus, you are, you are Lord. Um, you are the son of David. You're the descendant from David historically, uh, but you're more than just a man. You are uh, before David, and you are above David. You are the son of God. And um, we thank you that you reveal these things to us in the Holy Scriptures. And so, Father, would you help us with all our questions? Help us to see that we can come to Jesus, but we must, we should not put him on the dock, but we are going to be judged by Jesus, the King. And uh, let us come in a spirit of humility. And I pray that you would work these things into our hearts, not just head knowledge, but transform our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.